I'm Tyler Smiley. And I'm John Morrison. And this is the Rooted and Grounded podcast. Rooted and Grounded creates theological content to grow the church in our knowledge of God in order that we would grow in our love for Him and for our neighbor. Check out more at rootedandgrounded.co. Hey, I got a question for you. John, you ready? What, uh, let me ask you this. How many are the years? No, I'm, I already messed it up. How many are the years? I think you've been reading too much Spurgeon. How many are the days of the years of your life? How many are the days of the years of your life? I'm just asking a basic question. Uh, I'm trying to remember Psalm 90 to quote it to you, but it's, it's I'm drawing a blank right now. That would be incorrect. The correct answer would be to say... The days of the years of my sojourning are, oh, and then you fill in the years. I'm just trying to speak in biblical terms for us. Okay. I mean, it's right from the Bible. Mm. It's a great way to ask someone how old they are. How many days are the years of your life? Well, I would say the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone. And we fly away. The days of the years of my sojourning. So when someone asks you next time, how old are you? You need to respond. The days of the years of my sojourning are X number of years. Excellent. I'll, I'll be sure to remember that. Log that one away. Put that one away. That's in Genesis 47, if you're wondering where that comes from. Genesis 47, from the mouth of Jacob and Pharaoh, as they converse with one another. Yep. Jacob does not bow down, but he blesses. Mm, well, we're going to the get there. Shall bless the lesser. We're we're going to get there. Should you? So we're doing two weeks today. That's right. Forty-one chapters, forty-one through fifty. Do you want to tell the people why we're doing two weeks at once? I do because we feel it best to tell the entire Joseph narrative in one fail swoop. So we want to tell Genesis forty-one through fifty and one podcast for the OT19 reading podcast. Because I really thought it was because you were looking up uh, facts about Spurgeon. Do you want to tell the people what you discovered this week about Spurgeon and a reference to a sermon? Let's just say sometimes when you read Spurgeon, you fall into wonderful rabbit holes that you want to find where it ends. And uh, in one particular comment, Spurgeon discusses the cause of disease among the residents in the Swiss Valley, and I had to know whether or not he was right. Well, I think you should. The connection with the spirit's important, since that's actually what you're writing on. Okay, so what he was actually wondering was uh, he was making the point in his sermon of how the spirit is like the wind, and one of the ways that the spirit is like the wind is by purifying us, and when the wind blows, it purifies the air that we breathe. So we desperately need the wind, just like our souls desperately need the spirit to purify us as he blows and moves where he wills. So Spurgeon made a reference to this Swiss Valley where apparently there's a, uh, there is a phenomenon of poor air circulation, has yet to be substantiated medically, but if there are, uh, would that fall under a medical question or like a, I don't know, question for a world traveler or someone who just wants to research and learn more about the uh, medicinal ailments and uh, other such diseases of residents of the Swiss Valley? I'd love to know whether or not there is, in fact, poor air circulation in particular villages. The great joy of this is that you found a travel journal from Queen Victoria's doctor <laughs> that discusses it. 
So we, I think it's safe to say you're fully through the looking glass <laughs> into your dissertation, <laughs> just trying to live in Victorian England right now. You just got to be where he is. Think as he thinks. So more importantly, though, what we're going to talk about today is... More important than 19th century views on the well, role it's of hard to believe. debris in your health. It's hard to believe. Hmm. But uh, that was just one sermon illustration that he gave there. And people wonder why it's taking so long for you to write this dissertation. Well, what we want to talk about mostly, though, today is the Bible, and specifically Genesis chapters 41 through 50, and the Joseph narrative. Uh, And uh, we are combining two weeks into one. Uh, We can say that it's because it's better to talk about Joseph in that, that way, or we could just say that it's because editing and producing podcasts takes... Uh, an exorbitant amount of time. Especially when you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> so we're going to just two for the price of one on this one. It's a real deal. Let me start with Genesis 41. And uh, I think there's something pretty significant that stands out in Genesis 41. But what do you think stands out in Genesis 41? That sounds like the teacher who's not prepared for class. I mean, I see a lot of important stuff in here. <laughs> Well, what do you think is important? Do you use that a lot in Sunday school? Every now and then. Every now and then. Well, thank you for asking. You're welcome. I think the end of the chapter is interesting. Uh, so this is 41. Joseph dream, uh, interprets Pharaoh's dreams, gets out of prison, helps Pharaoh set up a scheme to protect and to provide for the Egyptians. And it turns out also for all the world. So 4157 reads, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. That's interesting. You know, I was told if somebody repeats something twice it's probably or repeats things, it's probably important. So we see twice we have that phrase, all the earth. And I think just given the context of Genesis, especially the family of Abraham, that they are called to be a blessing to the whole earth, right? Genesis 12, all the promises to Abraham, there to be a blessing to the world. We see that coming true even in the pages of Genesis. I think normally we think, okay, that's not going to happen. You know, from our Christian perspective, we think that doesn't happen until Jesus. That doesn't happen until the New Testament. But here, all the earth, they're coming. They're being blessed by Joseph. Now, not as significantly, not as greatly as when Christ comes, but they're being blessed. So, and you uh, draw this connection back to God's promise to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through him mm-hmm. and through his descendants. And so you you start to see hints of that. So would would you just say that this begins to develop this pattern that continues throughout the Bible? Is that how you would see this? Uh, thing? I mean, an actual real event that really does bless mm-hmm. all the nations that are coming to Egypt through Joseph right. specifically. Right. Had he not been there, had he not interpreted the dreams as God allowed him had he not instituted the actions to preserve the food as I mean all so all this is directly through Joseph God's blessing of the nations yes so it's just a reminder here that even after Genesis 11 even after the Tower of Babel the Lord hasn't forgotten about the nations and we'll see we'll see that throughout Scripture I mean throughout the Old Testament and obviously becoming much clearer when we get to the New Testament but there are these Sense. This is what God has chosen his people to do, to bless the nations. So this is where the story really takes uh, 
takes just such an interesting turn. Because as, it, I mean, it seems, let me ask you this first. The extent of the famine seemed to be, so far as their known parameters geographically were, I mean, it seems like everyone that they knew was was uh, being afflicted by the famine. It seems that way. Okay. Yeah, which is apparently, from what I read, somewhat uncommon that both, so Egypt, the area, you know, made fertile by the Nile River, as well as where Joseph's family is at this point, up in Canaan and the Promised Land, that they would be struck by famine at the same time is was not usual. So Joseph and his family are also in this uh, world that is being hit by the famine. Mm-hmm. So they, like everyone else, find their way to Egypt. And who would they find but Joseph? Now, they don't know it's him yet, which is the real kicker. Right, because he's dressed just like an Egyptian. He's shaved his head. He's got the makeup on. He's done... He looks like he's an Egyptian. He speaks fluent Egyptian. So he doesn't look like the brother that they left. So they show up in Egypt uh, looking for food. And what happens? I mean, what what occurs between Joseph and his brothers? You really just have this series of testing from Joseph where, I mean, as you read through these chapters, it feels like he's just playing games with, with his brothers, uh, trying to learn about his family without them knowing. So asking about his father, asking about his younger brother, uh, just trying to figure out what's going on in the family. And really, as it, as it happens, seems to be testing them to see, are these the same, are these the same 10 people who tried to kill me? So when he left, was sold into slavery, we may have talked about this on a previous podcast, I don't remember, but when he was sold into slavery, 17-ish, I think is the last Mm -hmm. number that we have of the days of the years of his life. Of his sojourn. Um, uh, In fact, the days of the years of his sojourning at that time were 17. And so when he gets into Egypt and begins to rise in power, now he's 30. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he's, I mean, there's an, Maybe I'm reading this thinking there's like an honesty about him. Like he wants to know what's happened to his family since he let he because he doesn't. How would he know? Yeah, I think you're right. Like he genuinely wants to know about the well-being of his father. Right. I mean, clearly they had a very close relationship before uh, before he was sold into slavery. So he wants to know. It's been 13 years, significant amount of time, especially given uh, Jacob is over 100 at this point. So. Uh, period of testing. Anything we need to see from that? I mean, is it you? It may come across as seeming that Joseph is being vindictive, but certainly doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, even he's being careful. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? I, I think mean, so. here he is. He now has uh, the power of the greatest nation of this time at his disposal, and the wealth of that nation at his disposal. So I think he wants to know, are they, are they, who are they? Are they the same people? Right. And I think we see they're not Mm. is the amazing thing. So I think for, from Joseph's perspective, you can understand why he's hesitant, why he would want to test and see, I mean, they literally wanted to kill him. Mm -hmm. And then when they decided it was better for them to sell him because they could make a little money than to keep him, than to kill him. So 
they're hateful. I mean, the last time you saw them, they were filled with hate. They were filled with greed and wanted nothing to do with him. So I think he, understandably a little bit cautious. Cautious. In Genesis 45, then, it says this at the very beginning of the chapter. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. It's kind of the big reveal moment. And that's mm-hmm. when it all happened. Mm-hmm. I am Joseph. And to your point, he seems to really want to know about his father because the very next thing he says, is my father still alive? Uh, but his brothers, they couldn't even talk because they were so just maybe aghast, torn apart at uh, this revelation of who this man standing before them really was. At this moment, the story uh, takes all kinds of twists and turns. Now, the reader has understood since Joseph's family came up that this is Joseph and his and his brothers interacting. His brothers have not yet known until this point. And, but now it's known to all. So the question is, how are they going to respond? What's the reaction going to be? What's it going to look like? And uh, how is Joseph going to treat them now that they know? Genesis 45, the big reveal moment mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. this. What else in that chapter? Yeah, I think even before, so just to f- rewind a little bit. Yeah. With 44, so we talked about this, I think, last time uh, with this narrative that we just focus on Joseph. But you see a big change in Judah as well. So as you're looking through Genesis 44, you'll remember Judah's the one who said, ah, I got an idea. We can make money off of him if we don't kill him. And in 44, we see him willing to take the place of Benjamin and to stay in prison for Benjamin rather than have Benjamin die or Benjamin be imprisoned. So just sort of a complete change of his character. Uh, he emerges in these chapters as the leader of the brothers, that he's the one who tells his father, no, send send him with me, and I'll take care of him. You know, Reuben tries to be the leader, mm-hmm. but he makes these rash claims like, tells his father, you know, if I don't bring him back, you can kill my sons. Yeah. Like, what What do you say, Reuben? No, Reuben, that's, that's just stupid. Where Judah says, no, I'll, I'll take care of him. We'll do this. You can entrust him to me. And then when it comes that Benjamin, when Joseph's ploy makes Benjamin look guilty, Judah's willing to sacrifice himself, which is what we know. The one who comes from Judah will eventually do Christ himself. That's right. So I think that's just to see Judah's development from the bloodthirsty, greedy brother who treats his daughter-in-law poorly Sleeps with a prostitute. Looks like a fool trying to find this prostitute that's actually his daughter-in-law. Just all those things. Now he's clearly the leader of the brothers and is willing to give his own life for the sake of his brother. So there's just complete reversal in his character through this story. So I think that's worth worth seeing that it's not only Joseph that God is working in and through through this narrative. There's this moment in Genesis 45 that... Uh, I think sets the stage for what 
the author of Genesis will reiterate later. Mm-hmm. In Genesis, let me jump ahead for a second. In Genesis 50, you have this uh, really succinct and often utilized passage that Joseph tells to his brothers, you meant it, selling me into slavery, uh, all this for evil, but God meant this for good so that... Uh, you know, so that the lives of many may be preserved. But you have a hint at that, and even maybe not as concise the statement, but the exact same idea and mm-hmm. language used mm-hmm. in 45. So in 45, uh, when chapter 45, when Joseph is has told his brothers who he really is, he says to them, uh, I'm looking in verse 7. Mm-hmm. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, this is verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Okay, I got a lot of questions about this. How about that phrase? That, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's right. Wow. And this isn't like years later after he and his brothers have been hanging out for a while. Like in Genesis 50, they've clearly been in Goshen. They've been in Egypt for a while. You would hope they're on better terms. But this is immediate. Right, immediate. When, right when he sees them. It was not you who sent me here, but God. So it's as if to say, observation, that Joseph had already worked this out in his mind before his brothers maybe even arrived. I don't know. At least when they first, by the first time that they arrived, he had already worked this out. Mm -hmm. He's he's looking to God, that this was God's divine, uh, divine will that would lead him there, that would bring him to this place. And as he saw it, to bless all the nations. I mean, exactly to the point that you brought out earlier. That's why, that's why Joseph sees himself there to preserve a remnant of the people. And you think when you hear when you read remnant there in verse seven, is that a remnant of people on all the earth? Or do you think that's a remnant of his family, of Jacob's line, of that promised, this promised, this chosen family? I would understand it as both. Okay, I think. Um, I think the language of having a remnant is significant biblically. You see that theme continue to play itself out, that God saves a remnant for himself of his Mm -hmm. people always. Mm -hmm. And that's an image of his faithfulness. But yet his common grace extends to all the earth. I mean, so in a real way, had Joseph not been there to implement the strategy of saving food for all the nations, who knows how many more lives would have been lost. Certainly, I'm assuming there were many. I don't know that there's a number ever given, but certainly there were many who lost their lives to this famine. Mm -hmm. So had God not done this, there certainly would have been many more. All right, so just questions abound about this. I mean, of all the different that God is uh, the one who seems to be directing all this. That's what Joseph understands. He's in the midst of the story. Yes. That's what Moses, the author, seems to understand. He's writing and retelling the story mm-hmm. as God has inspired him to do so. And so it seems like to me that uh, 
that God's utilization of this famine was purposeful and intentional, though he didn't bring about an evil, he worked through this Mm -hmm. so that many lives would be preserved. Like Joseph, you know, he sold into slavery. That's certainly an evil. Everyone understands that to have been an evil action. His brothers do. Joseph does later. Mm -hmm. It's very clear. Uh, His father understands that to be an evil action. It's not hidden. And yet God works through that to get Joseph into Egypt. He comes to Egypt. He interprets the dreams. Again, God's divine prerogative to give Joseph the ability to interpret dreams, raises in power, leadership, ability, authority. And you just, I mean, so for Joseph, they just see this is God working. This is how God works. That God has not taken away all of the various components of struggle, difficulty, evil. He's not removed all of those. Instead, he has preserved his people by working through them to bring about his good, even so they may be saved. <clears throat> so my thought with all of this is God could have seemingly stopped the famine. He could have uh, stopped that Joseph was sold into slavery. He could have, I mean, at any point along the way, he could have intervened in a particular way, and yet it's through these particular actions of man thinking they're they're doing their own plan uh, when God all along is working behind the scenes. An image of the sovereignty of God? What else can we say about this? I mean, I don't know uh, really what else to make of this whole story other than you see God at work in all things at all times. Yes, certainly his control over even the most gruesome of actions, and not in a way that makes him guilty, but in his in his perfect sovereignty, being able to work through these brothers, and not and it's not as if they didn't make a very real decision and a real choice. They did. It's very they don't feel imposed upon, but they are actually following the desires of their own hearts. They're doing what they want to do, and God is able even to work through that which I think is a testament to his power, that he can use even the most evil of actions to accomplish his will. Even these horrible things he's working through to achieve his good purpose. So it shows his sovereignty, but I think it shows his faithfulness too, that they, that even, even these, what seem things that are opposed to his goodness and his graciousness are accomplishing his will that he's going to preserve a people so that he can make his promise to Abraham come true. So as I read this, I just think of how maybe those that uh, first read this might have seen it after Mm -hmm. Moses writes, Mm -hmm. to think that there is nothing outside of God's ability to work through, that uh, neither human actions, though humans are responsible for, are not outside of God's control, that uh, uh, weather patterns and, and uh, you know, all these, whatever the famine, you know, all the, that the famine caused mm-hmm. and, and all this, that, that's not outside of God's control, that evil intentions of uh, lording figures, kings, pharaohs, evil leaders, none of that is outside. I mean, at every point along the way, God shows himself to be in control. That it's as if to say, look back, okay, people of the Exodus, mm-hmm. having come out of slavery in Egypt, right. look back at what God has always been doing. 
He's always been working through the evil intentions of men, which remain evil and are never good, to bring about something that is truly good to save life, to save a remnant. And then even look at how God has worked through uh, natural phenomena, like a famine. Even that is within God's realm of power, that he would work in that to bring about his own good. Uh, you know, this sounds familiar. They're in slavery in Egypt, and God rescues them out of it. I think Moses wants to say, that was God. They come to the Red Sea. It looks impossible. Enemy behind them, Red Sea in front of them. The waters part. They walk across on dry land. I think Moses wants to say, that was God. Uh, they're preparing themselves to face the evil tyrants and kings of other nations as they go to the land, and Moses is saying, this is how God has always operated. He's never taken away the obstacles, and yet he's always worked through them to bring about his good. Yeah, there has to be a message of hope to them in the midst of that. And I think for us, this isn't, it's not as if God stopped working this way when we turn the page to the New Testament. This is what he continues to do. And the ultimate example that Scripture gives is of the crucifixion of Christ. As I think about Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And his crucifixion is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The apostle says, you, talking to the crowd, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus is delivered up to be crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet, Peter can say, you crucified him. So a, this is the same thing with Joseph. Right? God planned. God was working. It's not you who sent me here, but God. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is the, this is the ultimate twist, right? That this is God's plan to work through evil people for his own son to be crucified. That deliverance, redemption would come to his people. That seems to be at least the large overarching theme of this latter part of Genesis. I mean, it seems to be that constantly, is, you could just say that at every point along the way. Uh, there are other themes in there, certainly, like forgiveness, reconciliation, I mean, all these types of things. Is there any in there in particular that... Well, I think all the ethical... I mean, Joseph is such a commendable figure. Maybe not as a teenager with his brothers. Probably wouldn't say, uh, go show off to your siblings how much your father loves you more than the rest of them. Maybe don't tell them their, your dreams about how they're going to bow down to you. Probably not, maybe not commendable, then, but from the point he's in Egypt on, he is very commendable, he's faithful, he endures. We don't know how he's handling, like how he, we don't see the process where he gets to 45-8, where he says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. We don't know his struggles to get there, to wrestle with those feelings. Certainly it wasn't easy. And we see that in Scripture, like dealing with suffering. We, we know the answer, but it's, not, it's never easy to do. But I think all those ethical pieces that we see, his, uh, his endurance and suffering, his willingness to forgive, his moral purity uh, with, in the face of temptation from Potiphar's wife, all those things seem to fall under the category of he knows that God is in control, he trusts that God is faithful, and so he can obey, so he can endure, so he can forgive. I think all those things fall under his understanding of who God is. Yeah. Hey, there's one passage that makes me chuckle a little bit. Okay. It's in Genesis 48, 
<clears throat> and it's when Jacob is coming to give a blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh, mm-hmm. uh, which are Joseph's sons. Yes. And he gets there, and in, I don't know why it's funny to me. I think our listeners will find it funny, too. Uh, I think it's because you're the youngest son, but go on. He's, maybe that's why. He says, uh, Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, and it displeased Joseph. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head and to put it on Manasseh's head instead. Because apparently his father was blind, like almost blind. I mean, which is, we've heard of that before. Maybe right? maybe seen a similar story. Uh, yeah. What goes around comes around, Jacob. Yeah, what goes around comes around. <laughs> Something Absolutely. like that. So Jacob has his right hand on Ephraim to bless him as the eldest that bless him in the way that the older son, the firstborn, would typically get. Mm-hmm. And then the other, the next would get the next blessing. But uh, Jacob has his right hand on the younger. And Joseph didn't like that. And so Joseph said to his father, not this way, father, since this one is the firstborn. So put your right hand on the other one. So I just picture them like, you know, <laughs> like when you have an aged grandparent, and they can't see very well, so you're trying to be honoring and kind, and you're saying, now that, you know, those aren't the birthday candles. These are the birthday candles. You know, blow blow the candles out. It seems to me like that's what Joseph is doing. Not, no, you got the hand on the wrong one. And Jacob knows what he's doing, but his father refused. Okay, so he's still stubborn. He hasn't changed very much, apparently. And he insists on blessing the younger. And he's he like, I'm the younger, upon it. we're going to bless the younger. He insists upon it, which is what I love. I know, my son, I know. <laughs> now, yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm putting on my own reading onto them and their <clears throat> attitudes in the reading. But it's very biographical <laughs> reading, I think. This, this describes a lot of interactions with your own father, right? Like, no, Dad, no, no, that's not it. And he's like, I'm doing what I want. No one in this story wants to admit that they're wrong. <laughs> I just think he accidentally put his hand on Ephraim, and he said, no, I meant to do that. He's the younger, and no one wants to admit that they're wrong. Joseph hasn't seen the irony yet, apparently, as the younger one whom his father loved more than the others. Yeah. And he's still trying to give the blessing to the older. And Jacob says, I know, uh, he shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But nevertheless, the younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall come, become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed him on that day. Now, I think it's funny. It's funny to me. I don't know if it's funny to other people. It's just like Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> The blessing. But what I think is great about it is the greater blessing uh, by pattern continues to come through the secondborn, which is what I think we are shown as who Christ is, that he is the second Adam, but he's the true Adam. Like, uh, And even in that way, he becomes as the firstborn over all creation, which he is, but yet he comes as one of Eve's descendants. Hmm. A seed from the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So that God, by pattern, continues to work in such a way, whether it's uh, stubbornness of human responsibility like Joseph and uh, Jacob and the deep-seated irony there that Joseph wants suddenly the older one to get the blessing, but that Christ becomes like that one. 
and actually he becomes the true one to which all the others are a type that it's through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis chapters 41 through 50. There it is. Two for the price of one. Well, uh, next week we'll be back and we will start reading Exodus. No, we won't. Oh, oh, whoa, whoa. (laughs) There's an interlude. 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 And this interlude is appropriately Psalm 119. That's right. So we will spend two weeks. Two weeks on Psalm 119. And uh, Psalm 119 is one chapter. But it's pretty long. 176 so, verses. There it is. So we're going to read you know, sections of it each day. So we'll read Psalm 119 for two weeks, and then at the end of that, we'll be back, and we'll start with Exodus chapter 1 and pick up right where Genesis 50 uh, leaves off. John, it's always good to see you back. Always good to be back. See you again next week. All right. Thanks for see your time. You,